Hello, and welcome to AI Time Journal Podcast. My name is Anthujan Sengelhian, and I'm here today with Prini Dutta, a research engineer at Google DeepMind. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about his background, his job at Google DeepMind, and his future uh, career aspirations and directions. So uh, to start things off, Prini, why don't you give us a little bit about yourself, your background, your education, and what made you decide to pursue an education in artificial intelligence? Yeah, of course. Um, and thanks for having me as my pigeon. So it's really nice talking to you. So yeah, I can quickly get started a bit about me. Um, so I'm a research engineer at Google DeepMind. Uh, I'm based in Mountain View, California. And um, my broad role is in working towards artificial general intelligence, which by itself is quite exciting. Uh, a bit just to go a bit uh, back, how did I get here? Um, I guess a nice place to start off is from university. I did my undergraduate studies in India. I was at this university, Vellore Institute of Technology in the southern parts of India. I did my undergrad in the area of electronics and communication engineering. So not too much, um, you know, uh, I, I didn't start off thinking that, oh, I'm really going to specialize in AI. That's just part of the story of how this happened, which I'll explain right now. So um, yeah, I started undergrad in 2012 um, and I was not sure, honestly, in what I wanted to do. Like, you know, at that point you're just starting off and you're like, oh, I'm in college and you know, um, you're like, um, let, let things happen. So a lot of people saying, oh, you know, do you want to, some people want to do an MBA or go down the formal business route. Some people want to get a job, some people want to pursue PhD, some people want to do like something totally different, like getting aviation. A few of my friends have become pilots. It's quite amazing. So um, I wasn't quite sure. So yeah, in, in my first year of undergraduate, I joined this interesting project where um, it is, it's called Formula Student. Um, in this, the university students days to build a, um, a well, it's not obviously not full formula at scale because it's quite expensive and involves a lot of <laughs> full-time dedication from a lot of trained professionals. But it's a formula version of you know a student-scale version of um, these competitions where students build these uh, race cars and then they go to these competitions across the world. I think the major ones are in Europe, and well, they compete over there across a variety of different tasks. So through this uh, competition, I worked as an electrical engineer given the background. Um, so uh, honestly, I felt it was quite hard to manage given we used to attend classes in the morning and then work on this, work in the garage at night. So uh, during that time, I was working electrical engineering system, mostly wiring harnesses, soldering and all the other stuff, you know, with the circuit boards. So a very close friend of mine uh, was in the powertrain system of the team and uh, basically working with the engine and trying to tune it so it performs better across the different uh, racetracks globally where we hope to compete. So I have to see him quite a, struggling quite a bit with like trying to tune the engine, try to make sure it performs the best and you know using the simulation software to see how it do given certain input parameters. And this was I think during my second of my, my starting of my junior year actually. Um, yeah, so, you know, once I just went up to him and said, hey, you know, um, I'm doing this really cool course on machine learning. It's by this guy called Andrew Ng on Coursera as a professor at Stanford. And it's pretty interesting. And I saw the idea of uh, perceptrons that can, that are good, you know, universal function approximators back then, but it was pretty new to me. So I told him, I see that you're spending a lot of time on simulations and, you know, you're struggling quite a bit with setting it up correctly and learning good functional approximation. Um, here's a crazy idea. Let's try to throw linear models at it and throw neural networks at it and see how well it does. 
So he's like, sure, let's do that. And, you know, it was kind of a research segue to what we were doing. We were both also that point thinking of what to do post-graduation. So maybe if you can make a research project out of it, that'd be fun. So we took, uh, we started, you know, evaluating these models and then, yeah, we got pretty preliminary basic results, as you can imagine from two people who can't code, but we just tried to patch something together. But, you know, uh, the faculty, I mean, were quite supportive. Uh, we presented this internally at undergraduate conference. We won a small prize, so like, yeah, that's great. Uh, we kind of extended the paper, tried to get some advice on how to write research because we were at that point just bootstrapping. So we tried to write a found paper and very luckily at an IEEE conference back then in London, we got accepted. And that was great because we got to travel and see other people publishing. This was my first time at a conference um, presenting my work and getting to see like, you know, real researchers, you know, who have dedicated their lives currently working on uh, this field uh, was quite exciting. Um, there's a lot of work in the medical field, uh, finance, um, automotive like ours. Um, so um, at that point of time, I kind of realized that this is what I want to do and decided to pursue graduate studies. Um, I joined uh, Carnegie Mellon's uh, graduate program in electrical computer engineering, basically took a lot of courses in machine learning, computer vision, um, and uh, yeah, a few in multimodal learning. Spent two years, one and a half years there, really liked it. Did an internship at a game engine company, Unity, so it's really cool. Um, I joined Google after graduating, uh, and I can talk more about that later on. And uh, I was in Google for almost two years, um, till 2019 December. And then in 2020, I joined DeepMind and I've been here since. Amazing. That's a very, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting background. Uh, I want to point out two really like interesting things that about your background is first you uh, follow a trend of a lot of like applied engineering students who pivot towards the machine learning, artificial intelligence space. I see that trend happening more and more. And I think it's that fascination with robotics and seeing how machines and seeing how equipment work that really look. Um, that really resonate with the predictive capabilities of machine learning and using that to help automate certain functions. Um, another thing that I found really interesting about your background is uh, your initial lack of coding experience. I think there's, a, there's this misconception that you need to be proficient coders or you need to be a trained software engineer uh, or computer scientist to get into the machine learning space. But as you can see with your background, you're now a research engineer at Google DeepMind working very heavily in the machine learning um, industry. And you picked up those coding skills as you went and as you progressed throughout the different stages. So I think once you have a strong concepts of the machine learning foundation and the artificial intelligence concepts, right? The coding comes naturally and that those are skills. Those are very technical skills that can be picked up as you progress throughout your career. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thought. And, you know, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because I work with a lot of really strong researchers, engineers closely working in this field. and. There's a lot of diversity in backgrounds, you know, like not everybody has a formal CS degree or CS PhD. They've all come from a variety of backgrounds, some from electrical engineering, some even non-engineering, um, some from, uh, yeah, remember my mentor at Unity, he had a psychology, a psychology PhD. It's just really mind-blowing because I think he picked it up on his own. So, um, yes, I do agree that one, a formal education is not necessary. Um, to get into the field and start dabbling it on your own time. Of course, different companies have their own requirements. So I can't speak for that. But that being said, if I would go back in time, I would invest my time in, and assuming I would work in the AI field, I would invest my time in a few other resources apart from just purely picking up um, some of the nice, I mean, just trying to run off the shelf algorithms, right? 
linear algebra, uh, statistics, uh, probability theory, that is quite essential um, to really understand the maths behind what's going on and all these algorithms out there. So that's something we're really strong in. In my case, luckily, studying electric, electronics engineering, um, I, I go to study a bit of probability theory backs up uh, that was covered. But if you don't have a maths background, I would definitely recommend that. The second is also software engineering skills. Now, in my, again, in my case, that was a bit hard, but just, I mean, I guess doing a few basic courses on like how Python works, the best programming practices and all, it's quite important. There's a lot of focus right now on ML ops these days and like having clean readable code and being able to maintain them well. And um, com coming from a background like mine, I feel I would invest, uh, I, I, if I invested that time, I would have saved a lot of time in like cleaning up my code base and make it more readable, functional and usable for production purposes. So of course, you know, being at big tech companies, you're able to learn from uh, much more experienced engineers and follow good coding practices. It's, uh, you have all infrastructure set up, but having that proactively done, I think is a big advantage. And I guess the third thing I think, you know, and again, all of these are, easier for like uh, students, but um, even if you're a professional, there are tons of courses out there on these. So yeah, you, you can learn how you want to pick it up. But yeah, and the third thing was also like understanding a bit of distributed systems and um, in the machine learning field right now, we are seeing a general trend we are seeing right now is like bigger and bigger models. And then that as a result of that, we also get to see like larger infrastructure used to support them, uh, not just training, but also, you know, inference, uh, sort of federated learning and all as well. Um, so also understanding computer infrastructure, running models on the edge. Um, um, that's something which I would recommend people also uh, study a bit about to understand what's going on behind the scenes. Amazing. Thank you for those recommendations. Our viewers will really appreciate that. Um, and while we're on this topic of coding and different packages that you're using, uh, I want to ask you, what are your favorite packages to use, uh, especially when you're doing predictive modeling? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So um, when I started off, um, as I, I did the Andrew Ng course, so um, that course, at least back then, was based on MATLAB or an open source version of it called Octave. So um, that had a lot of nice libraries there for like uh, vector manipulation and computing gradients and all that. So um, that, and I think also a few nice image processing libraries in MATLAB too. But um, yeah, I started off with that. But then this was around 2014, 2015. At that point, a lot more was going on in the Python world because uh, I mean, a lot like TensorFlow and all were getting right big at that point. So I started looking at these courses, uh, which had uh, these Python based as language of instruction. And then naturally, the most obvious would come to mind is NumPy and Pandas, NumPy for uh, manipulating data, Pandas for uh, okay, data, data frames. I mean, obviously they're quite correlated. We have a lot of correlated submodules as well. What I also found useful was uh, matplotlib, Seaborn, and then there are a few other visualization packages I also used, which um, were important. Um, scikit-learn, deep learning was pretty big back then, but people were still using the SVMs, regression, kernel-based, other kernel-based methods, Gaussian methods. So yeah, scikit-learn was quite useful. You can just quickly wrap up a model by passing it in input data frame. Yeah, and then uh, there's something I've been using recently. DeepMind has this open source library called Trees, and that works really well with nested data structures. I'm not sure how much your user might find it useful, but it's it's quite clean, especially you don't have to write these complex for loops, uh, uh, which at least I used to do in the past for like trying to manipulate these uh, complicated structures. In terms of like you know actual deep learning frameworks, like uh, I used and I, I also used TensorFlow quite a bit um, back in grad school. I started off with Keras when this was before TF 2.0 and it was less integrated in the main TensorFlow. 
system. So I, I started with Keras. I found that quite easy to use. But then I started using Tensor and like, wow, um, this, this is quite neat, especially for production-based systems. So I've been using quite a bit of TensorFlow. I've recently been trying to learn Jax. It looks like it's quite similar semantically to uh, NumPy. So I'm starting to like look into it a bit and see how I might use it vis-a-vis -vis TensorFlow. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I've never had the chance yet to use PyTorch, but at some point I might try it out and just see how that experience is as well. So why don't we move a little bit into uh, your professional experience? So as we mentioned earlier in uh, the podcast, you work with Google DeepMind. So I want you to tell me a little bit about that experience and if you could highlight some key projects that you worked on uh, with DeepMind and just overall your, your entire experience uh, working in that organization. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, you know, DeepMind, you know, was a really uh, like back when I think when AlphaGo came out, uh, I was like just graduating undergrad. So I was like, wow, that's a really amazing project, right? Like really smart people. Um, and back then I was like, oh, you know, at some point in the future, if I do go into industry, um, maybe one of the cool organizations for me to check out to work at. So yeah, um, things panned out. 20, 20 January, I joined DeepMind in its Mountain View office. Uh, DeepMind's based out of, you know, they have a couple of global offices, headquartered in London, but then they have offices in Paris, in Canada, um, and the US. So yeah, I joined DeepMind. Mind. Um, I'm part of the sub team in DeepMind where we work on many applied use cases. Um, and yeah, the, the, one of the more public ones which I'm working on extending is on uh, where DeepMind technique was used for optimizing uh, Google's data center, Google data centers. So I think they reduced Google data center bills by 40%. So yeah, I heard about that project before joining too, and uh, I've been recently working over it, uh, working on this, where we're trying to extend it for other industrial use cases. Uh, I've been working on some simulation efforts uh, associated with this. Another cool project I also collaborated at DeepMind uh, for a bit was with, uh, with a game theory group. And this, this is an exciting one for those of you who follow football or soccer in the US and Canada. <laughs> we collaborated with researchers from Liverpool Football Club and we published a paper on what AI can do for football, football can do for AI. Um, and uh, it's a pretty interesting paper. It was published in the Journal of AI Research, so you can have a look at that. I primarily worked on some of the computer vision aspects of that, seeing how we can estimate pose and so forth. So that was quite an interesting project. We also um, organized a workshop. You know, I'm personally into sports quite a bit. And I, again, I see the potential where AI techniques can potentially augment players' abilities, like maybe make coaching more effective or help people get insight, which um, can be readily achieved as much in the past. So uh, I'm pretty passionate about that area. Uh, so we organized a workshop earlier this year on AI for sports. So um, again, really great to see to different kind of uh, works out there. And yeah, I volunteered as a TPM for a uh, technical program committee member for these uh, niche domains. So uh, just, um, it's a great experience to kind of see what's happening over there. Yeah, so these are two of the like public collaborations I can speak about. I also worked a bit on a collaboration between DeepMind and Google Play where they used uh, DeepMind's, uh, where they used their agents to provide recommendations, personal recommendations in the Google Play Store for users. So I worked on the machine uh, for the on the infrastructure on, on that. So it was um, interesting to see how these models are set up and served. Sounds good. So I noticed that you mentioned a few times before on AutoML. And um, just to give our, our viewers a little bit of background information, AutoML is basically changing the machine learning uh, landscape. It's basically able to fast track 
uh, machine learning models through data pre-processing, model development, and even some companies like Data Robots, Databricks, H2O.ai takes your models and puts it into deployment stage. Um, the accuracy of these models are pretty good, and um, you know they're able to really handle like tough uh, data processing solution. Uh, challenges like imputation, uh, feature engineering, and etc. And so you can see a rise um, in these in these uh, companies and comp other organizations investing in making AutoML uh, one of their strategic points in their organization. So I want to hear what are your thoughts on on AutoML um, and what do you, where do you see AutoML playing in the future of the machine learning landscape? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I have worked with AutoML in the past, but my experience limited to GCP. Uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't seen what other major cloud providers have, but yeah, I mean, when, when we talk about AutoML, the term separate from meta learning, um, uh, what, I, what I'm talking about is like, um, a no code sort of a movement. Like when people want to quickly ramp up and say, oh, I have this treasure trove of data, lucky for you. Um, I have uh, in supervised learning paradigm, I have like input features and then I have the output label I want. I don't want to build up an Excel model and I trade, can you provide a solution for that? And um, I really like that such solutions out there, uh, Google AutoML, I think there might be variants of that, but um, the I'm talking about the structured one, first handed structured data. Uh, it's quite great. You can import data from data source. Like we have BigQuery in Google, basically like stores a lot of data, but I'm sure you can import it from other sources like CSVs, um, et cetera. And you can fit them, um, you know, you can pass it on to ML. It trains a model based on certain specific parameters. You said, how wide do you want the grid search to be? And based on that, it returns um, a model. It tells you how well it does, it tells you feature importance, um, what sort of examples? Well, it's been a while since I worked on it, but um, it tells you a lot of interesting information how the entire training went and a lot of insight on your data. So overall, on a high level, I really like it. It it it's allows to get not just the domain experts, but a lot of other people into a field real quick. So movements like these always um, um, get a plus one from me because that's great. Uh, it's expanding net. Uh, one thing I would like to point out to people like generally in machine learning is your model is you know um, obviously good architectures can optimize performance but it's only as good as the data you provide it so it's like if you put garbage in you can't really expect a really good uh, output right so um, stuff like you know data quality noisy data you know uh, missing labels all of these things really impact the performance of how well your model does so that's something people should be aware of. There's, there's no magic going on here. It's just learning, it's learning about feature representation. So what's being fed into these um, um, agents that are self-learned. So I enjoy that. Um, I specifically worked on something cool. So if you're viewers want to learn about that, um, there's one collaboration we had in uh, GCP uh, where for the reinforcement learning use case, there's something called contextual bandits. So it's a simpler form of RL where you have a single step. Um, and these bandits are used quite a bit in industry. A lot of big companies are doing it for recommender systems. Netflix has a nice article how they're using bandits for showing you album artwork. So anyways, um, in bandits, basically you're trying to estimate how good it is for the, uh, to show a certain, to do a certain action. So in recommendation systems, like what item, for example, to show to the user. And um, for, you can learn a deep representation that you know, takes in a tuple of a given state. So let's say the user demographics, a given candidate action, and then predict how good this action is versus other state action 
combinations, right? So it's called a Q function. And um, we tried to see if that rather than us, like, you know, drawing maybe your X, Y, Z, I mean, X many layers of neural networks, can we actually use AutoML to figure out the optimal uh, Q value and minimize a metric called regret? Um, Oh, that's too much information, but basically just see how well can fit the objective. So um, we got pretty good, pretty reasonable results. Um, this was quite preliminary to for full disclosure, but we tried to compare it against some of the baselines used um, on non-automal approaches, so like learned models. And um, it got pretty uh, interesting results on some bench, on limited benchmark data sets. So we got a paper out at Zurex's reveal workshop in 2019. And, um, yeah, that, that was quite fascinating. Um, I moved to DeepMind since, so I haven't been working on that project any further, but it's quite great to see AutoML being able to quickly emit a model and us just focus on like uh, building the uh, pipeline to feed in data to it. So something I worked on. Yeah, in general, meta-learning is, is quite an interesting field, like the ability to teach machines to learn. Uh, that's um, something I, I feel is quite important. Um, um, if you look at the way humans learn, most of us, you know, we learn by we either learn by instruction, by teaching, you know, one another supervised learning, or by the reinforcement learning paradigm by trial and error. Uh, being able to teach oneself um, has some commonalities with what's uh, being seen in meta learning literature right now. So, I'm pretty bullish on it and excited to see the progress made on it in the next few years. That's good. So to kind of finish things off, um, the beauty of machine learning is its strong partnership between academia and industry. Um, the research that academia pro um, produces helps inform best practice for industry and industry often provides a lot of the robust data sets that's used in these big projects used in universities. I see um, such increased collaborations between research institutes and industry. And I see that being the cornerstone of further for advancing uh, machine learning globally, um, especially because these two institutions have historically been very siloed from one another. Um, but another part, and I see this movement kind of erupting and then taking more full force, especially during the pandemic and seeing the inherent risks of machine learning is um, how do we use AI for social good? And how do we help make the machine learning community more aware of social good? And how do we, um, you know, begin to have these types of conversations. So I just want to talk a little bit about how you invested your time volunteering um, in the machine learning community and things that you do to help foster uh, deep learning and understanding of both machine learning concepts and to ensure that AI is properly governed and that the next generation of AI professionals are using best practices um, when deploying and developing their models. Yeah, yeah, all, all very great questions. Um, so I'll start with the, you know, uh, like how, what I'm doing right now. So yeah, on my end, I think about quite a bit, you know, cause we can see a lot of use cases where, you know, these models can be used on the various use cases. Um, so what I uh, spend my time doing with some of my, my alma mater actually in India, but also some other universities invite me. I sometimes give guest talks on like introduction to machine learning and mostly reinforcement learning. People really like seeing those animations of Atari and then, you know, the DQN agent being really well. <laughs> so um, I try to like have these um, talks, more like people can find the resources online, right? It's, it's nothing new, which I'm teaching them. It's all public information, but I try to get them, try to like, you know, in, in at least in my experience university, back then things were still developing and we couldn't really, at least I couldn't really see the broader picture, right? But being able to like get these 
ideas so like they just showcase this to like uh, young students who are just entering university and saying oh you know this is what's currently going on this is state of the art what can you expect to see in another 10 20 30 years from now so i've been trying to spend my time giving a few talks answering questions and then you know a few people reach out linkedin we met a fox um quite recently my undergraduate university they actually reached out to me as a professor i worked with in the past and um he said oh cool we have the research hypothesis on activation functions but uh, uh we actually want to get published what experiment should we carry out we did a limited set of uh, things we should test so uh, this is something which put i could help i'm by, i'm by no means an expert but i said oh you know you have this function great like look at what the other new, you know new activation functions evaluated on what benchmarks to use language vision structured data and so forth so i kind of guided them high level on like you know what to test out um, you know what, when is good enough what sort of results and all would be reasonable and then they weren't aware of uh, another thing people are not aware of is like you know it, it's like archive what is the advent of preprint servers so you can quickly get ideas out there so i told them oh you know you can wait for 6 or 12 months or even longer potentially for a journal review but um, uh if you really want to get the idea out there and like share it to other researchers with the caveat that is not peer reviewed yet so look at your own risk uh you can look at these preprint servers and then they were like oh we had no idea about this you know it's like oh we didn't know we could use archive then can if we publish an archive can we publish an ipple later on so questions like this were still open so it's like uh, so it's really great like being able to get them to put it on preprint server get it out there and then now these sort of best practices are flowing to other students who are taking the courses and uh being able to create this sort of like you know um, uh, knowledge sharing uh, i think is quite important so rise back to your question academia and industry right so uh, this is what i enjoy personally but i'm seeing this happen quite a bit um a lot more in the us and i, I hopefully it picks up in other parts of the world um universities and talk top academics are collaborating look at new rips and these conferences you see a lot of dual affiliations or people um, working closely together so that's uh, great to see and hopefully the trend continues um on your last question on ai for good yeah i i do feel that's a very important area and you know i i do kind of you know that's why i kind of choose the projects i work on um um cuz you know it it we have to be responsible for what's uh, happening next especially with like you know pandemics and climate change and you know thinking of these broad existential crises and how we can actually prepare for them best so i think um uh, on high level some of the leaders are thinking about these we we started seeing these workshops on ai for good and then most universities and uh, organizations have their own ai um sort of where they think about what projects they want to work on so i i think that's great um one thing you know maybe having this uh, done at the university level as well like uh, like encouraging students to think about how they can tackle a lot of social problems using machine learning and then rewarding them for uh, trying to uh work on these uh, areas that's maybe one more positive way to actually make impact on it make it more sustainable sounds good yeah no i think the first step is obviously being aware of the problem and trying to have uh, a conversation about it and you know that's when that's when changes uh begin to happen right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah Perfect. all right pretty thank you so much this was so informative and i really appreciate your time um i'm sure our viewers are going to really listen to your advice and you know hopefully it helps them navigate where they want to be next in their professional career and it also gives them a lot of inspiration on the different avenues and a little bit of insight cuz i think a lot of people are aware of the flashy headlines um at google deepmind right but it's also interesting to know that there's so many little niche projects that you guys are working on and that 
it's quite attainable to one day be working in a company like that. And so um, for you to like, you know, give that inspiration and give it that thoughtful advice, um, we really appreciate it. Uh, do you have any last comments or anything to say? <laughs> um, no, that's great. that's great. Like, thanks for having me here. And um, yeah, hopefully this helps um, to folks out there. Yeah, I mean, my one takeaway is like, you know, on a very high level advice is like, just keep working and then things eventually do pan out. So yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Mm -hmm.